Have you ever ventured to do something that appeared very simple, maybe even easy, only to get into it and realize it was much more difficult than you anticipated? Maybe you started a new exercise routine, and then two days later, when your entire body has shut down on you, you realize, maybe I may have bitten off a little more than I was prepared to chew. Or you took a class, and you thought this class would be a piece of cake. You know this material. But the professor, the teacher, perhaps, was really rigorous and difficult and made it a lot harder than you expected. Uh, back when we lived in South Haven and our, our, got moved into our first house, there was nothing separating our yard from the neighbors. And so I just thought, you know what, I'll build a fence. How hard could that be? The answer, <laughs> the answer was very hard, <laughs> impossibly hard. I don't know what I was thinking, that I could build a fence by myself in a day. I mean, I just thought it would be that easy. And it wasn't. And I think a lot of times in, in life, when there's a presumption of ease, and then we're met with the reality of hardship, we become very discouraged, don't we? I thought this would be easy. And we're prone, I think, in that case, we're more likely to quit because this didn't turn out the way that I, I thought it would or hoped it would. It's much more difficult. Uh, y'all, this is what we run up against today in Exodus. In the book of Exodus, y'all, the narrative if you've been with us or if you're familiar with this account, it starts out very badly, but then we're trending more and more in the right kind of direction here. If you remember the way Exodus begins, God's people, the nation of Israel, are enslaved and oppressed under the rule of the Egyptians. It's bad. But God appears to a man named Moses, promising Moses that a great deliverance is coming by the hand of God. Moses and his brother Aaron are commissioned to go to Egypt and to stand before Pharaoh. And by God's power, they're going to bring the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. And God attaches all sorts of wonderful promises to Moses and to this mission. And we saw at the tail end of chapter 4 last week, Moses and Aaron finally make the trek back to Egypt. They gather up the elders, the leaders of Israel... They speak the words of God and they reveal the power of God in their miracles and the people believe. And for the first time in a great many centuries now, there's a spark of hope. And when the people hear that God cares about them and God's going to rescue them, they bow low and worship. Things are looking up, finally. And the stage is now set for Moses and his brother Aaron finally, to go into the king's court. They're going to approach Pharaoh, all right? As the kids used to say, it's about to be on like Donkey Kong, okay? They're going to come in now and lay it out for Pharaoh as to what God is about to do. And the Israelites, potentially, they're thinking, once God gets a hold of Pharaoh, we're going to be out of here by supper time. This will be a piece of cake. But to their surprise, and maybe to ours too, the exact opposite happened. So let's look at Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Now, this jumps off the page, and it may, I mean, it, it stuns us, on, honestly, maybe. How Pharaoh responds to the word of the Lord. We see it again in verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And either way, I will not let Israel go. Now, it's, it's important maybe for us to keep in mind some context here. Pharaoh is the high king of the world's greatest superpower at this moment in history. This is a man who has no rivals. And in fact, Pharaoh saw himself, his people saw him as almost kind of a god in his own right. And so Pharaoh, feeling that he is the the ultimate authority in the world, he treats the so-called God of Israel like some kind of joke. Clearly, now, he doesn't dispute that perhaps there is such a God in Israel, but clearly Israel's God must not be all that great because the people of Israel are slaves to us. I'm the authority here. That's what's going through Pharaoh's mind and heart. And so, y'all, we get a reality check right away in chapter 5. The Israelites, they revere the Lord. They bow low and worship at his name, but the Egyptians mock him. His name and his word are meaningless to them. And so if that wasn't embarrassing enough, Pharaoh's response, what we see next, if you read through the narrative here, Pharaoh very much tightens the screws on Israel from this point forward. He makes a decree that the Israelites who are uh, in hard labor there in Egypt, producing bricks for the work uh, in Egypt, for the building efforts, they're going to be given no more straw to aid in their production of bricks. And so whereas before the Egyptians were providing straw to help the production of bricks, no longer the Israelites must go and gather up the straw for themselves and still maintain the same quota of brick production. So in other words, the, the work has been doubled upon them. And if they fail to maintain that same quota, they're going to be beaten without mercy. The workload has doubled because Pharaoh wants to make sure that the price is paid for the obstinance of Moses and Aaron, that they would dare to come before him and make such a request. He's punishing the whole nation as a result. And so, y'all, rather than things getting better, they've actually gotten much, much worse. And some of the Israelites, the foremen of Israel, go to Pharaoh and beg for leniency. They beg him for mercy. But he only intensifies his cruelty toward them. He accuses them of being lazy. And y'all, before long, as we might expect, human nature runs its course. The people find somebody to blame. They turn the blame back onto Aaron and Moses. This is verse 21 in chapter 5. Look at verse 21. They, the Israelites, said to Moses and Aaron, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, I think it's helpful for us to stop here and acknowledge an intersection for us. I think we all have some sense of what the people and what Moses are feeling right here. I mean, this is, this is a true story. This is very true to life, what we're seeing. Uh, the, the outpouring now of discouragement. We all know what this feels like. I, I, feel, I feel certain that you at some point have prayed to God concerning a situation or maybe a person, only to see that situation get worse, not better. Uh, you've prayed for somebody to be healed only for them to die and not be revived. Uh, all of us know what it is to, to request something of God, and, and perhaps it's something very good, very sincere, and yet things didn't get better. They got worse. And it may be that just like the Israelites and Moses in this case, we might become despondent toward God because it doesn't add up for us. This isn't how things are supposed to go. I know God loves me. I know God has the power to act, to heal, why doesn't he? Why isn't he? And what happens in this case, it's not just that, that people become discouraged, but everybody is now falling out of favor. All the favor that had been built up at the end of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron speaking God's word, performing God's miracles, now the people of Israel are wishing them dead. They're pronouncing curses upon them. Because the people appear to be further away from deliverance than they ever were before, even before God made the promise to save them. They were doing better than this. And Moses is ready to give up too. Lord, why did you ever send me here? It's only made it worse. Y'all, we can reckon with such a true-to-life emotion because we maybe, you know, maybe to a lesser degree, but still, we know this feeling. We don't understand what God is doing and why things haven't gotten better. Now, we shouldn't diminish that feeling or pretend it away, but we should also make sure that we're always standing on what God has actually promised. Because even here in the Exodus account, God never promised an easy, quick transition from slavery to freedom. So it's, it's worth us revisiting this for just a moment. What did God actually tell Moses that was gonna happen? Uh, two different places, chapter 3 and chapter 4, God speaks to Moses and lays this out in advance. Let me just show you again what he said in chapter 3. The Lord tells Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, but then God says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. Chapter 5, no miracles. Not yet. Again in chapter 4, God said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Things in chapter 5 are going miserably. But this is exactly how God said it would happen. It's playing out exactly as God promised. And so for us, again, there's an intersection here that I think we ought to take to heart for ourselves, present day, right where we sit. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted and received the grace 
of Jesus, you need to know, I need to know, we have promises from God that strike the very same chord as what we're seeing here in Exodus. There's a place in Philippians 1 where the Apostle Paul says, it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says again, we are children of God. We are heirs with Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. There's a pattern for us as Christians. It's not just an Old Testament example. It's for us in following and knowing Jesus Christ. There's a pattern of suffering which leads to glory. The promise of glory does not take place apart from the path of hardship. And I know my own heart, and I suspect I know yours too. We'd much rather, if it were up to us, we'd just bypass the suffering and go straight to the glory, right? Isn't that what we'd all prefer? But that's not how God has ordained life to be. Not even for Jesus himself, and especially for Jesus. The glory that Jesus Christ experiences in the resurrection, Easter Sunday, only comes on the other side of the cross and Good Friday. The glory of the resurrection necessitates the suffering of the cross. You can't have one without the other. One has to precede the other. Glory comes through suffering. We could say the whole basis for Christianity goes just like that. Only suffering can produce the kind of glory that is eternally sufficient for the righteousness of God to be satisfied. The cross must precede the empty tomb. For all of us to know Christ is to suffer. It's to be glorified too, right? That's the promise. But we don't have one without the other. And neither did the people of Israel. And so here we are. We're in Exodus 6 now. Everybody's ready to throw in the towel. They really thought, once God gets involved, we'll be out of here. Lickety split. No problem. When it doesn't go that way, they fall into despondency. What is God going to do? Is God going to overreact in a sense and say, okay, okay, I'll rush this process to get you out of there quickly. All ten, all ten plagues at once. You know, let's just knock it out. What does God do? God, before any miracle is performed, God very patiently and graciously reaffirms the promise, pointing to himself. Look at this. We're going to read a big section here altogether. Just let, it, just let this kind of wash over you. Exodus chapter 6. God is in control. Listen to who he is. Beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. 
And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me, for I am unskilled in speech? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God keeps doubling down over and over, doesn't he? No matter what the excuse or what the pushback may be. And y'all, in what we just read, that's 13 verses. There's a lot in what we just read. But one thing I want to draw us into, you notice this, God's plan is not simply to get Israel out of slavery. That may have been their perception and ours reading through the early chapters. God's desire is to get them out of there. That's, That's really what it's all about. But it's not. God's got a greater plan than just that. He tells us. God's plan, he says, is to redeem Israel as his covenant people. He even says it. He says it like this. I have revealed to you my unique name, Yahweh, which we translate as Lord. That is God's covenant name, which he did not reveal to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He revealed himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but not as Yahweh. And the point here is this. What the Lord is about to do in the Exodus is bring forth a kind of relationship to him that these people have never yet known or experienced. He is the same God now who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, yes, but through the the deliverance of Exodus, the Lord is going to make himself known to them in utterly unique and powerful and gracious ways. They're going to know him more fully than they could possibly imagine. The Lord is going to be revealed to them now, not only as creator, but also as savior. Not only as promise maker, but as promise keeper and fulfiller. Not as just an all-powerful being, but as a God who is ever-present and merciful and good. They're going to receive a fuller understanding of and relationship to the Lord, something that no one else has ever quite known in the same way before. God's making an amazing promise here. It's not just rescue from slavery. It's an entirely new way of being under God's mercy and grace. And y'all, this is something I want to impress on us because I feel like maybe for us in our culture and maybe in our upbringing, we, we tend to kind of settle at times for very generic forms of relationship with God. And I want to encourage us in this, that being a Christian is receiving the full measure of who God is, what he's like, and who he is to us, 
we should never settle for generic relationship with God, okay? And so listen, if you, are a, if you have trusted Christ, if you have received him, if you are a Christian, there is no big man upstairs. There is no God who is kind of far away, but we appeal to him every now and then before we eat our meals. That's not the relationship we've been given. No, the Lord has revealed himself to us very personally and intimately and graciously through his son, Jesus Christ. All throughout the New Testament, we're told things like this. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. The Apostle John in John chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. There's something about God's revelation in Jesus that brings God down to -to face-to-face level for us. That we're able now to actually, we we don't know God in some generic sense where we fill in our own blanks. God has revealed himself with amazing clarity and specificity through his son. And so what happens to us when we come to know Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we receive a relationship beyond our comprehension, beyond our worthiness. We come to know God in ways that are utterly astonishing. So the Bible tells us, for one, that because of Christ, we now relate to God as our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus told us to call Him. The same word He used to to respond to God's presence, the Father's presence. He called Him Father, and so do we. Because we are His children. That's the level of relationship we've been granted. We're told to draw near to God with confidence, to come close with confidence, Because Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God through his blood on the cross. Jesus has made peace. Our sins no longer make us alien to God. We're brought near by his blood. We're called to trust all of God's promises, to internalize and personalize God's promises. They are ours because in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes, the Bible says. Jesus is the guarantee that God keeps his word and will keep his word to us. We come to know God's nearness and his comfort, his presence, his closeness, because he's made his very spirit to dwell in us by faith. And the spirit testifies to you that you are his child. Y'all, I want to encourage us in this. It's possible that if we only ever think of God in very generic terms, it's at least possible then that we have not yet come to know him personally and intimately. And in that case, I want to appeal to us all. Jesus Christ has made God known to us in a way that was otherwise impossible and unthinkable. In 1 Peter, Peter tells us that Jesus Christ died for our sins once for all so that he might bring us to God. Not just so that we might get into heaven, although that's Part of the package deal right there, that's, that's great. But what's heaven worth unless God is there? There is no such thing. He's bringing us to God, the very person of God. We get a relationship with the Lord that is specific and clear and intimate and precious and personal. 
And so if you have received Jesus by faith, you are redeemed, you are reconciled, you are brought near, you are adopted in. There is no room anymore for a big man upstairs, no generic religion. He has made himself known face to face. That's his greatest gift to us. Better than anything else God could ever give you, it's the gift of himself to know him and to be known. That's what we've received. They will be my people and I will be their God. That's what he says to Israel. That's what he says to us. This is what their deliverance will mean. Not just freedom from slavery, but relationship with the Lord. And so, y'all, we see how this great section ends. We're already now into chapter 7. I told you we'd be kind of covering a lot this morning. The Lord just reaffirmed his covenant promise based on his character and nature, who he is to them. But he's also now in the last section today, he's going to reaffirm his plan and his purpose. The plan hasn't changed. Things have gone terribly. Things have gotten worse. But the plan has not changed one bit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7 now. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it, just as the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Uh, Here now, for the third time, at least, God tells Moses, Pharaoh will not let Israel go. Now, why is that the case? Why won't Pharaoh do it? Well, one obvious reason, it's very clear in the text, is because of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is evil, he is selfish, and he is prideful. And Pharaoh sees himself as the ultimate authority over the known world. No one rivals him. He calls the shots. The buck stops with him. And so when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's Pharaoh's heart. He's obstinate. He's evil. But Pharaoh, even in, and of course the irony here is, even as Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In that very moment, Pharaoh is unaware of the fact that the one true God, the Lord, is exercising his own divine authority. Even as Pharaoh speaks, even as this narrative plays out, God says in chapter 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Here again, chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, that's a peculiar thing for God to say, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And the two questions that for me come up in that is, okay, one, what does that mean? And secondly, why would God do that? What does it mean that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and why? Um, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not a removal of Pharaoh's will, as if God were now operating a puppet or a robot 
No, Pharaoh has a will. Pharaoh is evil. He's obstinate. He is already a heart of heart kind of person. That's who he is. And yet, there's still a promise here that God is going to act on Pharaoh's heart. That God is going to move in such a way that he will harden it. And harden it even further, even beyond where it is on its own. And part of what that means, uh, in the Hebrew, there's three different words actually in the Hebrew that, that are translated as hardening. One of those words means to strengthen. God's promise is that he's going to strengthen Pharaoh's obstinance. He's going to move on him to strengthen this, this hatred for Israel. Another word means, in a sense, callousing, that the Lord is moving on Pharaoh's heart, in a sense, to, to, to kind of callous it over. It's the opposite of softening the heart, which would be an act of mercy, but callousing over the heart is God exercising a divine judgment for Pharaoh's hardness and evil. And the result is, Pharaoh will not let the people go. God is acting to strengthen, to crystallize in some sense the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not let Israel go. And that, of course, that requires the question, okay, I thought the whole point was to let Israel go. Why would God work against his own purposes in that case if the whole point was to get them out of there? But again, let's come back to God's greater purpose. The whole point here is not simply that Israel gets out of Egypt. We saw that in chapter 6. God wasn't simply trying to set them free. He was building into them the kind of relationship that would sustain them and the future of the human race, for all that matter, because Christ would come from Israel too. God was declaring who he is. Here again, the purpose is not just to get them out of there as fast as possible. God declares it. We just read it. Look at verse 4 one more time. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. God is going to say stuff like this quite often over the next several chapters as to what he's doing and why he's doing it. And at the end of it all, it comes back to this right here. The Exodus will put on display for the whole world God's mercy, God's judgment, God's righteousness, his power, and his glory. Pharaoh, who scoffed at God's authority, now God's glory is going to be revealed in judgment. For Israel, who is crushed and helpless, God's glory is going to be revealed in his mercy to deliver them. But in either case, in judgment or in mercy, they will know that I am the Lord. I will be glorified. I will be honored. Now, y'all, if that seems maybe self-serving on God's part, I want to encourage us in this, that there is nothing more essential Nothing more central and necessary for the universe than God and his glory. God's glory is not self-serving. God's glory is the most essential reality that exists. Apart from God and his glory, nothing exists at all. Because he upholds all things by the word of his power. And God's glory, if we come to see it as a wonderful and necessary thing, then we come to recognize that everything God does, great or small, 
is an expression of his glory. Everything that we see, everything that exists is an expression, an application of God's glory, his majesty, his power, his goodness, including us. Right here where we sit. You are made in the image of God. You are an expression of his glory. Right where you sit, if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, if he has forgiven your sin and made you a child of God, you right now, you are a trophy of the glory of God. You are far more valuable than you dare to believe. You shine brightly the very divine glory of the creator of all things. Everything God does in us now, in making us more loving, in bringing us to confession of our sins, in giving us a heart for those who suffer, in loving those we share a church family with, everything that we do, God is glorified because he's expressing his goodness and greatness in us and through us. The scripture says, we who hope in Christ are to the praise of his glory. This ought to be the greatest notion that our minds can contain, that the great God of all glory would pour his glory out on you and me and be glorified in us. His judgment and his mercy reflect who he is. They will know that I am the Lord. They will know who I am. Y'all, I want to invite us this morning to respond. We're going to respond in ways that we know glorify God. We're going to pray that glorifies him. We're going to sing to his glory. We'll take communion in a moment and celebrate the glory that comes to us in the body and blood of Jesus. I want to encourage you in this. If, if God should so work in your heart and lead you to respond, to ask for prayer, to talk with one of our pastors maybe about what it means to be a Christian, what does it mean to be forgiven of sins and granted life in Jesus Christ? We're available for you. We want the opportunity to talk with you and to pray with you. So Aaron and Evan, our pastors, they'll be standing in the back of the room, uh, beginning even now by the back doors. If, if during the prayer, if during the song, if at any point in the latter portions of our service, if you want to talk, if you'd like to pray, then we're here. We'd be so delighted. Y'all, in every dark place, the light of Jesus Christ outshines it. There is no darkness that his light cannot touch and overcome. No matter how bad it gets, chapter 5, the Lord is our Redeemer, chapter 6, and he will be known in our hearts for who he is. All who receive him receive the light that outshines everything else. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning for myself. I pray for all of us. Lord, I pray against the kind of despondency that we see in Exodus, and perhaps we know very well. We've been through it. Lord, we may feel it in this moment because of uh, circumstances outside of us or because of our own internal um, struggle, Lord because of besetting sin or because of uh, some manner of suffering that we did not choose. Lord, it's possible that we are deeply discouraged right now. Things are not as they ought to be. 
And Father, I pray in that case that we would not slap a smile on and do our best to pretend. Lord, that we would not uh, ignore reality. Lord, this present world is groaning. We are groaning, Father. Things are not as they ought to be. That's very real. But Lord, in your grace, you always affirm to us who you are. In your grace, Lord, you reaffirm and reestablish us in your promises. In your grace, Lord, you open our eyes to see our crucified and risen Savior who stands in victory. And he has won the victory on our behalf. And so, Father, we can take courage this morning. It's just as Jesus said, in the world we have trouble, but we take heart, we take courage, because He, Jesus Christ, has overcome the world. Just as we'll see you overcome the Egyptians for the sake of your people, Lord, all darkness, all sin, Lord, all suffering has its redemptive purpose, and we find it in your Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered and who rose again. Father, will you help us this morning, embolden us, strengthen us, to see, Lord, what we are, who we are now because of Christ. You have brought us in. You have made our footing sure. Lord, we stand on solid rock. Father, our hope is immeasurably bright because of him. And he is ours and we are his. Father, we we ask today that you would give us such a a profound, a very deep sense, Lord, of your closeness. You're not a God far off. You're not a generic idea. You are our Father who has delighted to love us. And your glory, Lord, is upon us and in us and around us. Father, we are yours. We are your trophies of glory and grace. Lord, I pray that you would give us such a joy to know that you've loved us this dearly and you've delighted to come this close. We love you, and we ask, Lord, your mercy to be abounding upon us this morning as we stand and sing in Jesus' name. Amen.